Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 69. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing critical race theory and the gospel with Dr. Nathan Cartagena, Dr. Jeff Leo, and Dr. Robert Chow Romero. Dr. Nathan Cartagena is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College. Dr. Jeff Leo is the Director of Theological Formation for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and the co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. And Dr. Robert Chow Romero is Associate Professor of Chicano Chicana Studies and Asian American Studies at UCLA. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, Grace Sangalang Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on with the second episode in this series on cultural identity, we are here talking about critical race theory and specifically how it intersects with the gospel. Listeners should know that we actually had this conversation on Good Friday. And so there are a number of powerful connections that are made to Holy Week as a result of the time in which we had this conversation. So what were some of the takeaways that you all had from this conversation? I really appreciated not only hearing intelligent scholars knowing their ins and outs of what critical race theory is and how it applied to the different forms of academia and the church and different things like that, but the heart behind what they said, how they're pursuing interaction with critical race theory, and how the gospel was just so evident throughout the entire thing. One of my favorite lines that Dr. Cartagena said was that he talked about philosophical water that comes in contact with Trinitarian theology, and it turns into wine. And essentially what he's saying is that you could take these different philosophical tools and methods and ideas, but when they come in, and they're like water, right? They're great. They give life, you know, but when they come into contact with Trinitarian theology, they are transfigured into something that is is so much greater and gives us a picture of the kingdom, right? Um, And Christ himself. And I think that that's exactly what happens in this episode is you see a lot of philosophical water coming into contact with the gospel and just turning into wine. So I think this episode really drew in the deep abiding conviction to kingdom work that requires us to examine things uh, and structures and systems and even theories with a level of humility coupled with discernment, right? They are not divorced from one another. Um, and I think we can humbly approach um, these conversations with a heart towards reconciliation and a heart towards kingdom mindedness. And so I was encouraged by that and blessed by that. And in a season where I think the tensions of these conversations make you want to flee uh, and and really make you want to uh, envision something other than. uh, But I think it's kind of a kind of uh, growing up in the church hearing that the oil of the anointing is only occurs when you're pressed. And so I think for us to really anoint the work that God has called for us to do we need to be pressed into spaces that we otherwise would not want to be in. And so this is one of those pressing moments. And I think there's rich oil that came out of this discussion. There's so much rich, incredible insight stories and just straight up prophetic fire in this episode. I really appreciated the way that our guests connected the academic side of things, the legal 
the historical things with their own personal stories, really difficult yet really moving and really powerful stories. Uh, that's something you'll have to look forward to in this podcast. I really found the, the openness of our, our guests just so amazing. Um, one of the things with theology is that it can often be divorced from practical reality and for people's lived reality. And so the, the nature of uh, the way that our guests have been sharing, especially Dr. Cartagena at one point in this episode, really sharing the personal root of, um, of his engagement with critical race theory and, and why uh, this sort of thinking means so much to people of color. For all of us who are people of color on the team and for our guests, yeah, this episode was really powerful for me. I think it just hit me on so many levels, like the intellectual side, looking at the background of CRT, but um, also integrating that with um, the, the theological side and seeing how the gospel encompasses caring for those who are marginalized. And then at the same time, on a personal side, yeah, just really actually connecting with our guests um, in their experience as racialized minorities. Um, I just felt very seen and cared for in this conversation. All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Cartagena, Dr. Leo, and Dr. Romero. For, for joining us. It's a pleasure to have all three of you on here. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's joy. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about how each of you would define CRT, critical race theory, uh, and then also hear a little bit about your individual expertise uh, within that. Uh, so I, I tend to distinguish three senses of CRT. The first is what I call CRT proper. So this is what it was in its, in its origin and in many senses continuing to be. Then there's what I call uh, CRT in the derivative senses, the ways in which CRT as a movement travels into other disciplines. And then there's what I call the CRT in the culture wars sense. And uh, so let me unpack each one. So CRT proper uh, goes like this. Critical race theory is a legal movement aimed at understanding, resisting, and remediating how U.S. law and legal institutions such as law schools have fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy. Now, that movement houses competing traditions, which themselves house competing theories, and some parts of the movement, some parts of the tradition, some parts of the theories travel into other disciplines. So for example, there's a field, uh, subfield in education known as CRT in education. Uh, you'll see, uh, you'll also see CRT in, in things like philosophy. In philosophy. Um, but one of the things that I would, I would note is that CRT often morphs once it gets into these other disciplines. So even when they're taking what what a theorist might say is an idea from CRT. Sometimes you're going to see that there's consistency, but a lot of times you'll see that there's significant change to, frankly, it can be an all-out gentrification. And uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry helped me to see, for example, the gentrification of CRT and philosophy. So there's a, there's a philosopher, her name is Shannon Sullivan, and she claims to be doing critical race theory when she's really not doing critical race theory at all. In fact, she ignores all the founding texts, all the founding authors, and comes up with her own race-related ideas and champions this is CRT. So sometimes that's what happens. But I, I'll note that in, for example, CRT in education, you'll find people like Laura Lanson Billings saying, well, no, we need to do justice to the CRT that 
begins as a, a part of legal studies. And now we, we want to understand it and think about, well, what would be some implications here? So you can see two very different ways of, of approaching CRT. Uh, the culture wars uh, sense, I think is, it's best if I read a quotation that, that, that will give the audience an idea of what I'm meaning. Because when I see the culture war sense, what I'm seeing is something that's so capacious and so amorphous, it's nearly impossible to define. And here's an example of why. What I'm reading is coming from journalist Christopher F. Rufo. He says the following, quote, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under the brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans, close quote. So you can see, I mean, it, it, this idea of critical race theory, it's bringing in all sorts of things that are going to be seen as anti-US, anti-American, et cetera. So notice these three different definitions, they're, they're tremendously different. They're, they're, they're all getting at uses of the phrase CRT, but what we would mean if, for example, myself, or Mano Jeff, or Mano uh, Robert, if we're talking about CRT, we're typically going to be talking about the first two senses. We're going to be talking about the legal movement, and then we'll be talking about how it travels into other fields. But for many people, uh, perhaps some in your audience, the main ways that they have heard about CRT and the main sense in which they're interacting with CRT is this kind of culture war example. So it's important to distinguish three, these three senses uh, and, and frankly, do as much justice to the first two as possible. So um, I am an associate professor in Chicano Latino studies and Asian American studies at UCLA. That's my background. I come from a historian's background and a legal background, and I'm a pastor. I first was exposed to CRT through my law hat. And after getting tenure at UCLA a number of years ago, I turned to my passion project, which is how can I come to understand the role of Christianity in Latino communities for justice? So Latino communities and justice, how can I use CRT as a bridge to kind of understand, bring Christianity into this often hostile field, right, of ethnic studies that is often, again, hostile towards Christianity. So I said, okay, let me dig into my colleagues at UCLA in education and let me see what they say. And so I, I explored the writings of my colleagues, Tara Yoso and Danny Solorsono, and they talk about this notion of community cultural wealth, community cultural wealth, and spiritual capital, and spiritual capital. So my intellectual move was to say, where does the Bible talk about the fact that different ethnic groups of the world each contain distinct ethnic glory, if you will? So I go to Revelation 21, verse 26, where John says, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem forever. So I said, bang, that's it. Community cultural wealth and the Bible. So for my discipline, as a bridge to my discipline, I said, okay, it's impossible to understand the Latina, Latino, Latin American experience without understanding the role of religion and spiritual capital in works of justice. And that became my book, The Brown Church, a 500 year history of that. So I kind of go back and forth, you know, but basically I'm trying to create a bridge. This is the last thing I'll say, a bridge between ethnic studies and Christianity, just like John used the concept of the logos to kind of appeal to his Greek understanding audience. And just like Paul 
you know, speaking to the Areopagus said, okay, let me throw down some lines from these Greek poets and philosophers. That's what I'm trying to do for my discipline. And then there's me. My name is Jeff Leo. I, uh, I think it's actually Robert um, who introduced me to critical race theory. I was doing my PhD in theology and culture at Fuller Seminary, and uh, I wanted to focus on issues of race and, and theology. And uh, I did one of my directed readings with uh, Dr. Romero, and um, he handed me Delgado and Stefansic's introduction to critical race theory. And I approached it because, you know, I was in the theological world. I had come from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I did my MDiv. I was accustomed to kind of a systematic treatment of theology. I approached critical race theory kind of with that lens. Um, but also, I was working in the church, in the, in the local church, and now ordained in the, in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, and uh, trying to find points of relevance. So, you know, w- when you ask about definitions of critical race theory, I've really appreciated, this is like the second or third time I'm hearing um, Dr. Cartagena describe the three senses, and I definitely want to deal with the first two. I think in the ecclesial world, and now I'm in campus ministry as a director of theology for university, um, and kind of in the traditional evangelical systematics world, I'm looking at the way that the tenets of critical race theory work. Now, they're the tenets themselves, and we can describe them in the you know, critical uh, legal studies sense. We can talk about them in the, how, how they manifest in law journals. But the way I've described what CRT does, and especially with regard to church you know, communities, is that um, it organizes and operationalizes the collective memories of racism and understandings of systems and structures that work against communities of color. So I I think that's the work that it does. And those are the features that I I tend to focus on. Well, I'm wondering if you guys, since each one of you talked about your involvement in your local church and ministry, and then thinking about this from a Christian perspective, I'm wondering if you can talk to us about critical race theory and Christianity, kind of digging a little bit more into what you started um, in, in two senses. One in the sense of, I know that a lot of the people who laid down just kind of foundational concepts in CRT, many of them uh, were and are Christians. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about that. And then also, how is it that you all as Christian scholars think about the method of critical race theory from, from a theological perspective? When, I, when my colleagues at UCLA did like this book launch thing for Brown Church several months ago, and I invited my colleagues at UCLA to, to kind of be on a panel and to talk about the role of faith at UCLA in, in the discipline of Chicano studies. And I asked one of my colleagues, Danny Solorsano, who is the founder of critical race theory and education in the universe. <laughs> and he stunned us all by sharing his, about his faith, his Christian faith, and how that has animated his um, work in issues of justice and education for the last 50 years. Stunning, right? <laughs> so yes, it's true. Like um, a number of the founders come from the, this Christian um, background. I'm not a theologian, so I'll defer to my, um, my colleagues on that question. But for me, like my primary <laughs> spiritual gifting is evangelism. I came to know Jesus as an adult at Berkeley Law School and Jesus changed my life. So, I'm, so I want people to know Jesus. That's my main driving force. Now, if, any, if anyone from UCLA is listening, I respect the separation of church and state very, very much in the classroom. So don't try to fire me. But that being said, um, in my own free time, I want people to know Jesus. 
And um, to do that, CRT again provides that bridge, right? Where, where I, I can create the bridge and say, well, CRT says, for example, racism is ordinary. And I can say, oh yeah, the Bible says sin is ordinary, right? I can say, you know, CRT says we should value the voices of people of color. And I can say, oh yeah, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? Or I can say, oh yeah, CRT says community cultural wealth. That's Revelation 21, 26, right? And so my particular calling, I think, is to create that bridge. And as a very, very practical matter, thousands of people, by God's grace alone, have heard about Jesus through that method. So actually, when I think about um, the the articles, the, the law journal articles that I've read, um, if you flip through some of the uh, multi-author volumes on critical race theory, and you just, what I did was I looked up the names of who was there, the, the founding kind of thinkers and writers in critical uh, race theory. And I did Google searches for who they are, what their pedigrees are, and only a, 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 maybe two or three of them uh, had a, a divinity school or seminary training. That doesn't mean that more of them didn't have Christianity somewhere in their uh, faith tradition, but uh, the ones that did have uh, 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 divinity school or seminary in their tradition might have been like two or three. Um, so I think I've been looking for um, echoes of religiosity in critical race theory. And you can find it sometimes, sometimes very explicit. So sometimes there's reflection on the importance of the black church in critical race theory writings. Um, and some of that is by original critical race theorists uh, themselves. And some of, the, some of that is the derivative uh, kind of work and thinking that's been, uh, been produced in critical race theory. So what that's led me to, I think in terms of method, I, and this is one of the tension points and, and you know, we don't have to go too far down this road, but the method that I find most helpful, that there's a number of methodological things that we could say about critical race theory, but um, it's tradition critique. So when I take a look at the Christian tradition, so I'm coming out of a very white evangelical tradition, to engage in a kind of critical self-assessment, that's long overdue. And the ability to engage in that um, you know, at first you kind of develop this feeling that something's not right. Okay. Something's not right. So what tools and methods do I use to assess this feeling that I have? Critical race theory offers a few tools, some, some conceptual rubrics, some ideas and tenets that can be helpful in beginning to do some of that. And that's what I, I think I latched onto was, oh, for example, um, Robert's, uh, example that racism is ordinary. Well, that's a critical, almost prophetic way of taking a look at a tradition. If it's ordinary, and I engage in critical self-assessment of white evangelical tradition, traditions and spaces out of which I come, I will likely find something. And if I can find something, I can give it a name. I can talk about its problematics. I can begin to think about solutions. Um, you know, I can scrutinize it under the light of scripture, these kinds of things. I think that's one of the methodological things that helps me with critical race theory. So I, I, I want to take a step back to hit on a personal note, sort of like what her, uh, Romano Robert did earlier. I'll say that the person who introduced me to critical race theory was Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Uh, I've mentioned his name already, but I was in a philosophy potluck dinner. And I felt completely out of place. It was I was getting ready to start my master's at Texas A&M. 
And I was wondering, what in the world am I doing here? And, and Dr. Curry uh, came and started talking with me. Uh, and over the course of our conversation, he ended up suggesting that given that I, my family's from, from, Puerto, uh, from Boricua, from Puerto Rico, he thought I might be interested in thinking about critical race theory. And he didn't say a whole lot more, but I think he, he, was, he knew that given the legal history between Boricua and the United States, I would find that really helpful. And he helped me to know where to go, go to the reader, avoid these places, because I said before, you got gentrification problems of the field. And as I was reading people like Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw, to Jeff's point, a lot started making sense. And honestly, I realized that I had a very poor education. There was so much about U.S. history, so much about European colonialism, so much about church history. I just didn't know anything about. And I'm looking at these footnotes after law review article after law review article, for example. I'm going, oh, my goodness, these people are putting in work. Like They're, they're, they're involved in they're, they're working through key texts in history, key texts in sociology, key texts in, in theology, key texts in anthropology, key texts in psychology and, and, and in post-colonial studies, decolonial studies. And I felt frankly, at times overwhelmed. It's like, how, how in the world are they doing such, either we can call it interdisciplinary or what Cornell West calls de-disciplinized work. It was just shocking to me. But what I, what I also saw is how they were pulling insights from all of these fields together to make sense of the world. And, and I started thinking in terms of Thomas Aquinas's conceptions of law from the Summa, where Thomas says, look, all human beings are law bound. We're bound by divine laws. Let's start there. <laughs> divine laws. And he's like, I'm not worried about the divine laws, but we're also bound by human laws. And Aquinas says, that's where we need to interrogate things. And one of the things that struck me is Thomas says, yeah, laws govern all sorts of aspects of human life. And I, as, I, as I thought about that, I, I kept thinking about the CRT stuff that I was reading. I was like, oh my goodness, this is why it's such a comprehensive movement, why it's hitting on so many different facets, why it's drawing from so many different movements, because law does, as it were, regulate all these little nooks and crannies of human life. And then again, I was thinking with Thomas, and I think this part is going to be really important because I, so I, I'm of the, of the sorts of Christian traditions that are like a Thomas Aquinas, they're like an Augustine, they're like a Clement of Alexandria, where I think all truth is God's, all truth is God's truth. And I'm interested in learning, to use Thomas and Boethius's phrase, what the philosophical water is, whether it's in the household of faith or not. And I see it as water. So I see it as life-giving. It's nourishing. It's the sort of thing to continue to return to and, and, and to be edified from, frankly, to, to, to be able to make your pilgrimage. But I also think with Aquinas and Boethius that as you bring in this philosophical water and it comes in contact with Trinitarian theology, it turns into theological wine. So this gets into both Robert's point and Jeff's point about how as they start thinking through critiquing of tradition or how, does, how do these insights relate to things I see in Revelation? It takes on enhanced meaning. And you get to appreciate, for example, how if, you, if you're seeing God continually say, I'm opposed to oppression, I'm opposed to exploitation, Jesus identifying with the least of these in Matthew 23 saying, if you want to know where I am, here's where you'll find me. And then you start looking at how racialized societies going from European colonialism to today are divided into these racial spheres and into these class race spheres, for example. And you're like, oh, no wonder we see so many black and brown bodies in prison. No wonder we're seeing these disparate numbers in terms of um, healthcare and, and pregnancies and, and, and death during pregnancy, et cetera. 
So as I started making sense of that, I was like, oh, this is, this is tremendously insightful. And then I want to say one, one last thing. One of the things that critical race theory forced me to recognize was the long history of white Christian nationalism. And I know that uh, Hermano uh, Robert talks quite a bit about this in the Brown Church, because these Iberian conquering folks see themselves as white, and the indigenous, for example, as non-white, and the Africans as non-white, and they, they're constructing con- conceptions of who would, who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, in ways that are bound up with whiteness. And theologians like uh, Willie James Jennings talk about this, J. Cameron Carter talks about this. And I say this because when I had to work through, in particular, Robert A. Williams' book, The American Indian in Western Legal Thought, and I saw how forms of Christian nationalism again and again were used to, di- to, to promote the legal dispossession of indigenous lands, to promote the legal conquest and, frankly, genocide of indigenous peoples. And, and, as a Latino, I'm, I'm thinking about how it's my family warring against my family in places like Moriqua, for example. It really hit home. And I thought, my goodness, as, as Jennings says in After Whiteness, the church has made a mess of so much of this stuff, has done it in the name of various forms of white Christian nationalism. And it is important for Christians to step up and to serve as sources of salt and light, to be voices of resistance and remediation in the face of what, frankly, is family history and egregious family activity. Yeah, thank you for that. And just for the need for the church to step in and stand against um, that kind of white Christian nationalism. I really like um, how all of you talked about um, the necessity to integrate our theology um, with CRT and how that does go together in advocating for those who are marginalized. And so a question that I had is how does liberation theology and um, Mission Integral relate to CRT to help Christians have a more holistic view of the gospel? So CRT in, in its simplest level is a prophetic academic critique. That's what it is. How has race been operationalized in, in the law and history and in different fields to give privilege, give money, give rights, more rights to certain people and not to others? That's in essence, right? Um, CRT is like the book of Exodus. If you look at, at Egyptian history, right, there's no record of the Exodus in the Egyptian records. So the book of Exodus had to be written, right? That's CRT, right? If, if, it, was, if it was up to the Egyptians, there would have never have been any record of the Exodus. That's just what, that's what CRT is to, act, to academic disciplines. And uh, Mission Integral, which is a, a theology from Latin America, popularized and developed by people like Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar says like the gospel is like a plane with two wings. One wing is the verbal proclamation of the gospel, the good news of that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. He came to make us and the whole world new. The second wing is embodying Jesus's love for, you know, through love of neighbor and creation and so forth. One, stated another way, one wing is our personal transformation in Christ. The second wing it's transformation of all of God's creation that has fallen because of sin and every human relationship that has been ruptured, right? And so CRT fits into that second wing really well. <laughs> CRT is just showing how have we failed to love our neighbors as ourselves? How have we created laws and histories and policies and healthcare systems that allow certain people to be favored and others to not be, right? 
And so CRT is simply, it's just a, it offers a framework of prophetic critique so that we can love our neighbor better. Yeah, I'd love to spring off of that because if, if CRT raises a concern, for example, if racism is only a matter of attitudes, right, as opposed to something that actually happens to people's physical bodies in real time because of systems and structures that exist, right? If it's just attitudes or, you know, the province of the lunatic fringe, as I've, I've written somewhere, then that requires a completely different way to address it, right? It, it, it involves attitude management, or, you know, maybe we can teach our way out of racism. And I think that has been the approach for decades. You know, even last night I was in a, 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 a listening in on a, a, a webinar from one of the local police departments. And the refrain was, we just got to stand up for each other. We just got to stand up for each other. We just got to stand up for each other. That's been the refrain for decades. And here we are with the kind of anti-Asian racism that has reared its ugly head. And I don't think we just need to stand up for each other is going to cut it. So if CRT points that out, then theology can come along and say, okay, what does my anthropology say about what a human really is? Is discipleship really just about attitude management or does it involve our bodies? And what theology is going to help us get there? Right? So let me take a second one with regard to liberation theology. Liber some liberation theologians will suggest that the Trinity itself, the community of the Trinity, is a blueprint for human civilization. That the co equality of the persons of the Godhead should be reflected in human relations. Right? If that's the case, then there's something about the racial dynamics that create inequality that need to be addressed because of, principally, the life of the triune God demanding it. Well, that's a way of getting at it. I'm, I, I think there are aspects of liberation theology that need to be grappled with. It can be leveraged for this kind of um, imagination of equality among um, uh, peoples. You know, it, it manifests itself in things like the preferential option for the poor or base ecclesial communities, the way we structure relationships with each other, that things happen on a local level because of the life of God. Um, so those are ways that a critique that comes from CRT can be paired with theological themes that have been developed in many cases before CRT emerged. That's really helpful. I, I'd like to add by making three points. three points. The first point is that it's important we recognize that there's not one liberation theology. And one of the reasons I'm stressing this is that historically, for example, Latino and Latina theologians, uh, liberation theologians were loggerheads with African-American theologians like James Cone. And the loggers, the, the, the meeting uh, of the butting of heads, excuse me, often happened over what to center. Are we centering race or are we centering class? And Cone has written quite a bit about this and how Gustavo Gutierrez helped to, as it were, serve as a bridge between two forms of doing liberation theology. I say this because in part, critical race theorists like a Derek Bell, like a Delgado are gonna say what, what Cedric Robinson has said. Capitalism, for example, has been racialized from the beginning. So class and race are intimately bound up. There's no separating these things. They're intimately bound up. So I, I wanna note that because there are still some forms of liberation theology that suggest all we need to do is pay attention to race. Others that still suggest all we need to do is pay attention to the class. And I think, no, what you're seeing, for example, with later Cone is, is, is more accurate. No, we need to pay attention to race and class dynamics. And I, I see that's, that's the sort of thing that CRT scholars are also saying. So that, that's one. Second, second point is, I think, getting back into to claims about Trinitarian theology, it's important that we ask ourselves, for example, when, when the triune God 
gave laws to Israel, we should note what those laws addressed. For example, here's how you treat orphans, widows, refugees, pilgrims. Here is what your courts should look like. There shouldn't be this kind of partiality where because the wealthy are wealthy, they get to have, for example, to bring a modern day uh, example, they get to have the lawyers that are going to make sure they get off the hook, et cetera, et cetera. And God makes it clear in the Mosaic Covenant, I hate these things. That's exactly what I'm opposed to. That gets recapitulated, for example, throughout the whole book of Isaiah. Think of the opening of Isaiah. God's like, I can't stand how corrupt you all are. So now I want to say this. One of the most important things that that the three uh, of us are going to note is that racialization practices, the birth of white supremacy, the structuring of societies in terms of visions of white supremacy, that's not happening in biblical times. That's happening with European colonialism going forward. So one of the things that the church must ask is how is it that modes of racialization that are tied up, bound up with white supremacy lead to distorted social relationships that are in fact completely antithetical to the ways that God wants us to relate to one another. And you can say these things and think about these things without saying, for example, well, what we need to do is just recapitulate the Mosaic Covenant. We're not saying we just need to be theological reconstructionists because as Augustine said, as Aquinas said, no, the new covenant doesn't come with a kind of Mosaic code, doesn't. So Christians have to do, frankly, a lot of hard work to ask, how do we promote justice? How do we promote mercy? in the various forms of political arrangements that we have. So it's quite different when you have a monarchy compared to, let's say, you're in the United States, and we have a kind of democratic republic thing. It's, a, it's, it's not always that clear what is going on in the United States, though often the plutocrats are, are still on top. So I, I know this because it's going to be important then for us to ask, okay, how does CRT enable us to think about, in particular, the legal racialized dynamics that are weighing in and pressing down upon us and our neighbors so that we could better love our neighbors. And then this will be the, the, the third final thing they'll say as it relates to CRT and, and liberation theology. When you read people like Derek Bell, one of the things you find is especially early Bell, he's like, oh yeah, I'm doing the work that I'm doing because I am a baptized member of the AME church. So African Methodist Episcopal Church. And he's saying, yeah, I'm part of the black radical tradition. I'm learning from people like Du Bois and King and, and, and Baldwin etc cetera, etc cetera. you'll find christians like amani perry championing forms of black liberation the- theology within her efforts to do critical race theory so I-, I note this because there are examples of racialized minority christians who are saying well because of our robust conception of the gospel as something that's about cosmic redemption cosmic salvation and therefore also cosmic liberation in an already not yet sense they recognize this few people are willing to talk about the not yet like Derek bell if i'm honest this is part of his permanence thesis he's like yep we're stuck with a lot of racism uh, pretty probably until we're all six feet deep we can resist and remediate it as best as we can but it reminds me when he says this about christ saying the poor are always going to be with you just because the poor are always going to be with you doesn't mean that the command isn't still go and love and care for the poor you know there are going to be systems that are promoting poverty you know people are still going to be poor the call is to be faithful. And so that's, that's that third piece that I really want to stress is we see critical race theorists that do endorse certain forms of liberation theology operating in the social sphere. They don't, they don't try to sweet talk about how bad things are, but they're stressing the need, as, as Jesus did um, when he's, when he's uh, coming against the, the Pharisees, and that's actually Matthew 23. I think I might have missed up earlier, meaning Matthew 25, when Jesus identifies the least of these. But Matthew 23, Jesus stresses the need to promote justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So one of the things that I think we can learn from CRTers, like a Derek Bell, for example, 
is how we can be honest about the ways in which our social systems are ravaged with injustice. And as we look at that and we see how hard it is to resist and remediate it, we can look to faithful witnesses who have said, yes, it's going to be challenging. Yes, it's going to take, we might not see as much progress as we hope, but we can be faithful lovers of God and neighbor by confronting these things. So uh, thinking in some of those ecclesial uh, frameworks that you all are presenting, what are some practical ways uh, that the church can advocate for those that are marginalized? I, I think, Dr. Cartagena, you, you mentioned, you know, aspects of the AME church. I come from kind of more moderate Church of God in Christ. And so w- when we're thinking about these spaces, right, we're coming from different theological frameworks, even within what might be considered as monolithic. All right, so what, what are some of those practical ways that you think you think we could show the church on how to advocate for those who are marginalized? And I know to what you, you said, Dr. Lou, uh, like the discipling out racism piece is also difficult as well, but I'll kind of throw that out there too. Like uh, what are practical ways we can disciple out racism if, if that is at all possible? And then what ways can we speak to the marginalized? Wow. If I can just react to the question to the question for a second, um, and then maybe I'll come back around and, and actually say something um, uh, more collected. But my reaction to the question is I'm in contact with enough churches where I see church staffs. Um, you know, there's plenty of church, there's plenty of clergy who are dead set opposed to CRT. I'm not talking to them right now. So I'm talking to the clergy that know that your congregation is way more Christian nationalist than you. In fact, you probably bristle when you hear or sense Christian nationalism in your congregation, but you have yet to do anything about it because it's not polite. Because, you know, you, you, there is some mythical prohibition against getting quote-unquote political with your congregation. I love you, brothers and sisters. You know, I, I used to do the job that you're doing now. It is incredibly difficult, but you don't get a cookie for that. It, it is just hard. This is the call that you accepted. This is the call that I accepted as a, as a clergy person. It is difficult to lead, and um, the Lord Jesus will walk with us through that. But when you know what is right, I mean, you talk about discipling out racism, you know you're supposed to do this. So to wade into those Sunday school classes where you know the president is a, uh, listening to um, QAnon, um, is listening to, to, to not engage that, you know you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Brother, sister, let me encourage you with all gravitas. Do not miss this opportunity to be faithful and obedient. You know it's not okay. Let's work together on this. Give us a call. Give the podcaster folks here at Two Cities a call. Um, uh, We want to work with you to make sure that um, God's family is not reflective of the kind of nationalism and violence that has characterized the last year, years, decades, centuries. I want to thank you, uh, Romano Jeff, for that. I think that several several things are going to be relevant for folks in church, whether they are leaders in the church or or not, to to think about. One is we need to again distinguish the forms of racism. 
So we're not, none of the three of us are going to de- deny that if you hold racist ideas, racist sentiments, that you're racist in certain senses. And that's a kind of racism. That's true. That's what we could talk about in terms of an individual's racism. But then we also need to talk about the broader racist structures and systems that are in place. Okay, that's yet another form of racism. And I want to distinguish at least those two kinds of racism because it shows to something that, that Hermano Jeff said much earlier, we're going to need different remedies for different ailments different remedies for different ailments. So, so now let's, let's focus on the individual. The kinds of racism that my mama, grandma had because she was born in Jim and Jane Crow was socialized as a child all the way to the point that she was married in Jim and Jane Crow, South Carolina. That just is different than the forms of racism that I'm dealing with. And I don't just mean internalized racism. I mean the ways in which I'm still endorsing various racist, white supremacist ideas about different people groups and not just, for example, myself. It's, it's very different. The kind of socialization practices were different. What I need is different than what she needed. Though, of course, we both need Christ. We both need the Spirit's work. But what truths we need to hear, what practices we need to cultivate were importantly different. Now, I want to say, okay, so as we think about there will be different remedies for different individuals, how we look at the broader structural societal realities. And I want to say, here's the truth. Matters are bleak. The truth is matters are bleak. So, for example, most people that are educated in a seminary or div school don't even take a class on race, racism, the, the history of race and racism in the church, et cetera. And that's so important because if you don't go, let's say you're working on your MDiv, if, if you go four years through an MDiv program, because you, you're, you're taking a little bit longer maybe, and you don't hear any of this, it's not presented to you as pressing of the utmost importance. And you don't have any time to learn from somebody who's supposed to have made an extended stay in relevant text sharing with you. You don't get to have the experiences of talking with students, fellow students saying like, what do we think about this? Whoa, this is really challenging. If you don't even have, and for some, let's be honest, they don't even have one class period, let alone a whole course on these things. So then they get into the parish, they get into a congregation, they're trying to pastor, and they are completely out of their depth. They have no idea what's going on. And because they are in congregations, denominations, presbyteries, dioceses, for example, with people who have been similarly educated, it's a bunch of shared ignorance. So to Hermano Jeff's point, like they know that, th- that things are wrong, but they're not sure how in the world to address these problems. And of course, they have people that are going to be with them. They're saying, oh, there's nothing wrong at all. Or no, the real problem is CRT. It's not white Christian nationalism, even though the Department of Homeland Security would say something else. So they're wondering, how do we, how do we make sense of all this? And let's be honest, the call, as Hermano Jeff said, is, is, is to try to become as educated as you can while also caring for people on their deathbed, while also caring for, for, for widows and orphans. So you're trying to do all these things and learn what you didn't get. So I'm noting this because notice how you're seeing this broader systemic reality of what what critical race theorist Kendall Thomas calls organized forgetting. There's a complete failure to educate people to be good ministers in this actual racialized world. It's they're often educated and trained and cultivated to be good ministers in some other world where racism's never been a problem, where classism's never been a problem, ableism's never been a problem, sexism's never been a problem, et cetera. And then when we're asking, okay, well, what happens when we see that there are problems, we note that there are problems, look at all the modes of resistance to addressing, to remediating these things in the seminaries, in the div schools, in the conferences. And the truth is, friends, again, I, I want to be honest, the, the bulk of the money, of the power, of the draw, is going to be with organizations and groups that are going to be downplaying all of this. It's not that there's no money, that there's no, there's no support for those who are going to be saying, whoa, we need to take this seriously. But it is much less in, 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 compare, in comparison to other groups. 
So I think when we recognize this, one of the most important things we can do is say, yes, I need to address the individual racism in me and individual racism that's in my family and, and members of, of like a Bible study, et cetera. But then we need to ask, how do we form church-based groups of community to say, we're a covenant community, we're going to resist and remediate these things, but we know that we're talking about broad societal, frankly, global realities. So how do we, as a portion of the church, get connected to other portions of the church and together pull our resources, pull our insights, pull our life experiences and say, we will be a people that are salt and light conjunto, together, not as isolated individuals, not as isolated parishes or congregations, but no, we as, as part of the body of Christ are going to try to tend as well as we can to the whole of the body, drawing on the whole of the body, knowing that different places have different strengths, different insights, et cetera. I think that's the, that, that realism about how bad it is, while also saying we're going to listen to the whole of the church, are, the, are at least two key components for how we would go forward. I can jump in with an example of like some of the work we're doing in LA, kind of on the ground level like that. So I have the privilege of with my wife, Erica, and many others, Reverend Alexia Salvatierra and, and the Valientes, different close friends, we launched an organization called Matthew 25, Matthew 25 in Southern California. And it brings together local congregations of many different denominations, cultural backgrounds to, to get involved really tangibly with um, the needs and learning as well as learning from um, the immigrant community. So one real practical example to start simple, which I think is really helpful is like, Individual churches or multiple churches will come together in, into a into like a support community to support one family that's going through the asylum process, right? Real simple, right? Might be like people from five different churches, 20 people, and they say, okay, well, there's this family that, that has their court date next week. Let's accompany them to the court. Oh, they need a lawyer. Well, let's raise funds. They need a place to stay. Well, Joe has an empty apartment room. Oh, they have a newborn kid. Okay. Here's gift cards. Let's drive to the church and here's gift cards for diapers. Real simple, right? And I think that like that that's the best place to start because it can be it can be so overwhelming, I'm sure. Like, you know, for a, I'm a pastor as well, but to jump into all this, but I think like start simple and just take it from there and and, and partner with don't and no need to reinvent the wheel. There's amazing Christian organizations that have been doing this work in every topic you, you can think of for like decades. And, and of course, you know, be glad to, to have a more specific conversation than that. But start simple. If I could just come back around and say something a little bit more reflective <laughs> after my reaction. Um, I, I still am thinking of those clergy who are responding to and putting out little fires everywhere. Um, you're, you're getting emails, you're getting texts and phone calls from um, concerned, well-meaning congregants I'm worried that we're going Marxist. I'm worried that we're going liberal, et cetera, et cetera, right? So let me just advise those of you who see what we see and are concerned about communities of color, especially the people of color in your congregations that you're trying to care for, and you have these folks that have these ideological concerns. So for you clergy, I want you to be really cautious about your uh, using the tools that you've been formed by. I think for many folks, we operate when it comes to answering questions, we operate in an apologetics fashion. There is an answer to a question. When you do that, my concern is that you play the game that the questioner has set up. 
it now becomes a battle of ideologies. And I don't want you to get caught into the, in the culture war um, that will not be productive for you. In a sense, this is the difficult calculation that I want to invite you into. There is a sense in which you must choose this day whom you shall serve. Is it the game of culture war and ideological, endless ideological wrangling? Or is there for you clarity in the scripture about the foreigner, the alien, the widow, about the racialized other, about the people who received less honor and need to be treated with special care? Is there clarity for you about that? Then there is a new game to play, the one that the scriptures have set before you. Let that be your major, and don't major in the minors. Major in the majors and, and stick with what uh, is, is clearly central to you. Don't play the game that will distract you from the real work. So th- I, I just think that there is a sense in which you must choose this day whom you shall serve. Thanks for that. I, I, I think about how explosive the reaction is when you use the words critical race theory in some contexts in churches, right? It comes with all the Marxist things you were talking about. And even the preloaded like misinterpretation of what it is, right? And so immediately people shut down. Critical race theory, oh, put up the finger. Oh, I don't want anything to do with that. I also think about the subtleness of somebody that it's in a position where they can't impact in a way from the front or go into places and, and, and do like you said, Jeff, like walk in and, and correct and think they don't have the power in their church or they don't have the uh, backing or all the kind of different stuff. So two, part, two parts of that question. Is there a way to talk about this stuff? And I think there is without the explosive reactions, without, without saying critical race theory, without, you know, you know what I mean? Like without being explicitly saying cl- critical race theory. And two, how can somebody do this if they're not in a lead role, a, a role of influence where they can make changes or confront big things like the ingrained Christian, Christian nationalism you're speaking of? I can share real quick, like from like a, the lens of like someone who like working with churches, I think of like as a community organizer, I'm sorry to say that it's going to turn some people off, but as a community organizer, say we get a call from a church who says we or just like you said, like one person in the church, or maybe it's an associate pastor who says, gosh, I want to do something around issues of immigration, but the whole church is not on board. And what we do is we talk with whoever is interested and we say okay let's come up with a plan maybe you can't you're not at the place where you can preach a whole sermon on sunday about immigration but maybe you and your small group can do a study on the bible and immigration and that's okay start there right or maybe you can start with just buying gift cards for a family but i think it's it's like it's not necessarily an all or nothing approach it's like start where the opening is with whoever that is, and I think it's going to be different in every situation. Yeah, I'd like to add to something that Romano Roberts saying. I, to get back to my point about the different spheres and the different remedies we need, it's important to realize people have different roles and different calls. So what it is for me to promote race conscious justice and mercy as a philosophy professor, as, as a husband, as a father, as a son, as friends to, to various racialized people, et cetera, it's, it's importantly different. Than if, for example, I own a small business, or and I want to stress this, I'm somebody that's bedridden with autoimmune disorders. I think it's very important when we're talking about what any person should do that we don't presume certain class, we don't presume certain race, we don't presume certain abilities. 
because what routinely happens when, when we do that, and this this is one of the reasons why I, I really appreciate Armando Robert and Armando Jeff saying, like, we'll work with you. We can we can try to offer more specific suggestions. Is that for some, because they're working multiple jobs, they're barely making ends meet. They know that this matters. They can see that it's part of uh, of what God is calling them to do. They feel so weighed down because they don't have the time that a certain activist does, the time that perhaps a philosopher that's a that's also a professor has, the kind of reach that somebody like myself, for example, could have in, in the classroom teaching 70 students every semester, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I want to encourage those listening to ask, what are the groups that I'm connected to? What are the ways that I can promote race conscious justice and mercy there? And I want to start by saying race conscious justice and mercy. So maybe I will individually be reading Delgado, Crenshaw, others. Um, but if I know, for example, that I'm part of a congregation where there's a lot of hostility to CRT, well, okay, maybe I'm not going to emphasize that we need to do this because CRT people are saying, it, even as I'm continuing to, to learn from CRT people, but I go to the scriptures and say, okay, it's clear we have to care for widows and orphans. It's also clear that when I look at the demographics where we're living, most of the widows and orphans are going to be racialized minorities. So we need to ask, what are some of the things that are perpetuating these disparities? Because if we're going to love them well, we don't want to just hand them something and then and now we're done. We want to be able to come alongside them and love them as best as we can. Now, again, that's going to be different for, for, for each person. Um, and then I think in particular about the, the kinds of stiff resistance that will come to CRT and so forth. So one of the things I find most helpful is putting primary text before people, saying, here's a court case. He, here's something that theologian X, Y, or Z said, this is an example of white Christian nationalism. Or, okay, look, Chief Justice John Marshall in his third, what's known as the Marshall Trilogy decision about indigenous land rights, flat out says that power, conquest, and war give rights. That's not something, <laughs> and it's still law, by the way, that's still law on the U.S. books. Christians are going to look at that and go, oh my goodness, and you just show them. And you say, look, look you, can, you can go to any site you want that has those recorded decisions. This is the sort of thing you're going to find over and over and over again. For people from Puerto Rico, when we look at the insular cases, we find the justices saying, well, we want to make sure we maintain the American empire, which is what Chief Justice John Marshall talked about. So how are we going to maintain a certain set of relationships with these non-white Puerto Ricans so that we don't talk, you know, ruin, as it were, the white empire? These are the sorts of things you'll see explicitly presented in U.S. law. So when you start showing people like, this is what's going on, and then let me give you one other example. You start showing people the history of redlining practices. See, these are the restrictive covenants. These are the ways in which people were promoting white flight. And you just show the receipts. You, yes, you might be getting them from CRT scholars, but you could also, of course, be getting from other people. And you just show that and you, you let people sit with that. And then I want to stress this. It's very important that you start doing discerning work. Because some people do not have eyes to see, don't have ears to hear, and you can, frankly, start answering a fool according to the fool's folly and make the fool seem wise in the fool's own eyes. You don't want to do that. You need to discern who is able to receive these, these truths, who's able to work through this, and who can't. And I know that's a lot of work. And, and frankly, one of the hardest things is there are going to be times where you see people that you love who aren't ready, and you have to trust God to care for those people, to love those people. You're still loving them. You're still caring for them, of course. But now you're not trying to engage in a certain kind of, what we might say, Christocentric care for the least of these with them in the same way. 
You haven't stopped loving them. You haven't stopped praying for them. As best as you're able, you're maintaining conversations with them. But you know, this is a person that is not going to be able to walk with me in terms of caring for the least of these in these areas. So I'm not going to try to force it. I'm not going to try to, to, to require this to happen, especially if I don't have, as you were saying earlier, Josh, the power. Now, I do want to know, some people do have this power. And one of the most egregious things that has gone on in U.S. churches is there's been a complete failure of church discipline. And so I want to say for those that do have power, when you see not only that people are holding really egregious theological beliefs, but you also, as you should be checking in on their lives, if you see they're not loving their neighbors well, it's your responsibility to love people enough to say hard things and say, sister, brother, I'm really worried about your failures to love your neighbors. And if you're not doing that, then we need to say we're really concerned about your failures to love your neighbors. Because as Jeff was saying earlier, there's a unique call when you are somebody's shepherd to shepherd them well. Yes, it's not. It can be a whole lot of not fun, but it will be your responsibility to ask, is this a person that's really caring for widows, orphans, those in distress? Or is it a person who thinks, ah, no, that's just a bunch of welfare queens. And so racist ideas are keeping them from the kind of Trinitarian commanded love of neighbor that they should be promoting. Oh, what to do, what to do. I mean, first of all, please hit rewind and go back and listen to what was just said here, okay? And then next, go and follow Dr. Cartagena on Twitter because the kind of um, receipts that he just mentioned are, are filling his, his Twitter, uh, you know, his tweets are filled with those receipts. When you get those facts in front of folks and folks that can hear, that is really powerful. I remember talking to a recent college grad who, this is right after the murder of George Floyd, and he just said, I, you know, I, 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 because of the spirit, you know, I had the wisdom to ask him, tell me where you're starting with all this stuff. And he let me know, there's absolutely no way I'm going to commit to Black Lives Matter. Okay, that's your starting point. I can start somewhere else then. And I took him from one place to another place. And I hope that there's a journey ahead of him. I can't guarantee that it's not up to me. In fact, what I would, you know, really recommend to folks is to not fret about the powerful. They're not, they're not yours to worry about. Don't fret about turning the tide. You know, the question is about people that might not have the kind of influence that people with platforms do or, you know, who are professors of students. Don't fret about turning the tide. That's not yours to do. Fret about the people who are suffering. Concern yourself about them. I would even advise you to not even, you know, let the right hand know what the left is doing. Don't, don't display your concern for the suffering by standing on the street corner and shouting from the mountaintops. I hope that's not what we're doing here. Just get in the streets and do the work of caring for communities that are suffering. Um, I would even say, you know, Josh, your question is a good one. I wouldn't say that you ought to be defending CRT. I don't want to engage in that apologetics mode that there's an answer to everything. In fact, that's what I was talking with um, Dr. Corey Edwards, who was the fourth person on the um, the episode that we or the 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 panel that we did for the CCCU. Um, we agreed that defending CRT is the wrong game. Even if that's what we end up doing in the course of our commit, expressing our commitment to communities in suffering. Um, but I do want to make one clarifying remark. I, I think that it's still possible to commit oneself to, and this is what I've heard people say, I'm doing the work in the so-called inner city. But this, there's still a kind of holding an entire community off at an arm's length because they're not your people. They're the people that you target for your charity. 
that's very dangerous in terms of really understanding what's going on in another person's world. Just admit that you don't know how things work in other people's worlds. And then commit yourself to asking the questions consistently so that you can learn and so that you can deepen your relationship with people in communities that you care for. And if you can't find one, it's either that you live in a certain kind of place that you're not proximal to one, or um, actually you're overlooking them. I think, especially as it relates to engaging people that you might not have engaged before, we have to think in distinctively Christian ways, which means we're thinking about mutual reciprocity. So these, you need these people and they need you. There's no, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the one that's going to be the savior of any kind. And here's something else, mutual reciprocity and a, and a robust vision of the church, as, as Armando Romero was talking about before, the, the idea of the glories of different people also requires us to say, we have to care about all the oppressed, regardless of how they're racialized. And that's one of the things I think is so profound about people like Derek Bell. Derek Bell, of course, is concerned about anti-Black racism, but he's also greatly concerned about poor whites that are constantly being exploited within a certain economic system. And so I'm saying this because what Christians can't do is say, I'm going to pick one group to care about and then too bad for everybody else. No, the call is to be begging the Spirit of God to increase our capacities, to love all of our neighbors, to care about all of our neighbors, and not in a way that sees ourselves as the Savior, but says, Lord, insofar as you have given me gifts, help me to bless these people. And insofar as you have given them gifts, help me to receive the blessings that they have from me. It's that kind of mutual reciprocity. It's not, frankly, the kind of conquistador idea like, let me bring to you the word that I have. And, and you know, now we're pummeling you or in various ways dehumanizing you. Thank you, Dr. Cartagena. Uh, I really resonate with just that call for needing to reject or, or to push back against that, that conquistatorial perspective. But it strikes me at the same time that, as, as you noted earlier, critical theory, critical race theory has expanded in scope and it covers a whole bunch of different social categories uh, now from a social psychological point of view, different cross-cutting categories, different groups that people, lots of people are a part of. And it seems that dilution of focus there has led to the patterns of argument being able to be seen in different ways. And then they seem to get co-opted by others. And it's almost this conquisitorial perspective coming back. So I saw the other day uh, a whole bunch of arguments from white Christian and also non-Christian nationalists and some of whom are part of listed terrorist groups, um, who I'm not going to bother naming because who wants to give them airtime. But they were using the same arguments that have been used or the same patterns of and way of thinking about critical theory, uh, that they are being persecuted because they've been listed as a terrorist group, or they're being persecuted because they're not allowed to storm a capital anymore. You know, that they're a persecuted minority and they're listed under law, you know, the basis of, of critical uh, legal theory, or critical legal studies. Um, and therefore they, they try to excuse that racist behavior uh, through arguing what we might call the Eichmann defense. You know, it, uh, it's just what is brought on by my culture. I'm a, I'm a, a tool of the law. And well, I could say that they're tools of many other things, but you know, they, they argue that they're just tools of the law. How do we respond to that sort of twisting and warping um, almost of that conquisitorial uh, stance uh, coming back in and saying, well, he, you've had this really good resource. Let me come back and tell you what it really means. I'll jump in in a very basic, easy way. Sorry, I'm just like a little, I'm like a hood pastor, so I'm just going to be real simple. 
Revelation 21, 26 says that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. Every ethnic group has glory and honor. But verse 27 says, but nothing that causes sin will be brought in. Nothing impure will be brought in. That's where scripture is so critical. I'm sorry, but I try to read the Bible once through every year for the last 20 years. Like that's, this is that basic, right? So it's impossible from that lens to say, oh yeah, I love Jesus and I'm being persecuted and I can just blow up the capital. Like, no, that does not jive with scripture. I'm sorry. So that would be, that would be my very basic take on it. Yeah. I think one of the things to, that that's important for both, both the question and, and the comment that her, uh, Romano Robert has given is, those who champion intersectionality, like a Patricia Hill Collins, acknowledge you can use intersectional analysis to defend forms of white supremacy. They, they talk about this in their introduction to intersectionality. So the, the intersectional mode of, anal- of analyzing things doesn't guarantee justice. That's one thing that we have to be upfront with. And then this gets exactly to what Amano Roberts saying. So th- now we have to ask questions about, okay, let's look at the actual histories. Let's see how groups have or have not been subordinated, exploited, oppressed. And then, for example, wh- wh- one of the things we might have to say is, yeah, maybe in certain areas where there are uh, more white nationalist militias, we do see a long, nasty uh, history of neoliberal exploitation of that area. You see the Rust Belts, you see the sending of jobs to other places. And there is, in fact, the need for Christians to resist those evils without then saying, oh, yeah, now it's all about white Christian nationalism. Let's champion that. No. We have to be able to make sharp distinctions about what is and is not just, merciful, good, et cetera. And, and, and again, this, this is often going to require that we can't play a certain zero-sum game. Either they're wholly right or they're wholly wrong. We're going to have a lot of moving parts. There are going to be many hands involved in this. And, and we'll want to be able to say, for example, to sisters and brothers in places like West Virginia, for example, or Ohio, where you do see the rust battle effect, yes, no, you all are being exploited. You all are suffering. That is true. And we want to be able to resist and remediate that. It's also true that there's been a spike in anti-Asian racism, even amongst those that are part of the middle to upper middle class in the United States. They can still get, as they're walking to church, more or less curb stomped on the road. And we have to see that that's part of forms of, of anti-Asian racism that have a very long history. So we need to resist and remediate that. And, I, and this is why, I, again, I want to emphasize what Hermano Roberts saying. We're asking, what are those things that are good, right, true, and beautiful, that are glorious in every people group? Let's celebrate those things. And then what are those things that are evil, that, that, are, that are abominations to, to God, that completely corrode our ability to love neighbor within all of our different groups? And how do we, as it were, eradicate those things that are part of us? And yes, an intersectional analysis can help us, for example, or a multivariate analysis can help us to see those things about ourselves. We might see like, oh, gosh, this is a congregation where, yeah, we have, we have more racialized minorities, but they're only of a certain class. And we're not doing anything for the poor, but we feel so great about ourselves because, look, we have 40% racialized minorities in a congregation, we might say. Okay, no, no, there are still tremendous problems there that we would need to, to address as we're striving to grow in godliness. So I think those are some of the ways that we can answer. Again, yep, no, you can use an intersectional analysis to promote all sorts of things. So now we need to ask important historical questions. We need to ask moral normative questions about what's good, what's evil, et cetera. Chris, thank you for the question. It is a great example of when I, when I refer to the game and the way that it's played, the kind of false moral equivalence that people draw between the pain of communities of color and the pain of white, the, the white communities, um, that is a, 
That is taking a product, a kind of knowledge, a body of knowledge that is um, born in and by communities of color and taking it for a different purpose entirely. Not unlike the way that the instruments in the temple were taken by captors and used in ways that they shouldn't have been used. So I want our listeners to understand the game of false moral equivalence. And I want to echo what Dr. Cartagena is saying about why history is so important, understanding, you know, where these influences are coming from, um, knowing that the, the, the sources and the streams and, and the directions that they flow. And I'll give an example of, of what stuck out to me as, as Dr. Cartagena was talking. Now, I, I remember reading um, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail in which he argued with his, um, the, you know, the, 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 the jailer that you should be marching with us. That he also was captive to a system that disadvantaged him, but because of the dynamics of race, wasn't able to see it. There is a commitment on Dr. King's part, and I think on Jesus's part, to care for people who are actively hurting us. I want to be very careful about talking about that, because when I say that to communities of color who are actively hurting, for some of them, it'll make intuitive sense. Love your enemy. For others, that's an oppressive demand that folks aren't ready for. I believe that to love one's enemy is a gift of grace from God that we are not capable of. Loving our neighbor is hard enough. Loving our enemy. I mean, folks, it's Good Friday today. And he breathed his last, and he said it was finished. This work of love was finished today. We are not like him, but we will be made like him. I, I want to encourage our listeners to um, think about loving enemies and be inspired by, um, by Jesus in this way. I do it really imperfectly, so I'll tell a quick story. I joined a small group where I would be subjected every time we gather to the kind of disbelief and erasure that Asian Americans feel on a regular basis. You know, I'm trying not to play the game of false moral equivalence because it comes up every time. When I talk about racialized pain, someone in the group is going to say, oh, I feel that too in a different way. Or perhaps this happens everywhere around the globe, a kind of universalization of suffering that erases specific pain and communities in pain. What it takes... Like sometimes I, I leave that small group and I'm just fuming and I, I talk to my wife about how I've been erased and, and moved to the margins, et cetera. And one of my colleagues um, in university asked me, like, why do, you, why do you stay at that table? And most days I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know why I stay at that table. But when I can gather my wits about me, there is something about the life of Jesus that beckons me to stay at the table. Everything in my world, including many of my friends, say, you would be totally justified to leave. And I think that they're right. But I think that there's something worthwhile about continuing to stay at the table that isn't captured by anything but the life of Jesus. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm like tearing up right now just hearing you say that, you know, even in the midst of your pain of feeling that erasure and that minimization that you still stay at that table so that you can be a voice um, and engage. I think that's really inspiring for me to hear 
as a Filipina American, um, because I do feel that erasure so many times in trying to talk to my friends about these issues. And yeah, just going back to, you know, because of Jesus, that's why you stay at that table. I think, yeah, that was really encouraging for me to hear. So thank you so much. And thank you for sharing that. I'm so sorry you've had that experience. And I've said this elsewhere, I'll say it here. Um, Grace, people like you and me, we need to find each other and um, hold each other up. I'm, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Let me just echo that as well. And it is even outside of America, uh, the erasure of Asians is very common here in Australia. Uh, we have political parties which have campaigned on that exact platform. And one thing I, I would note here in Australia, uh, we're a little bit ahead of you guys. Uh, it's not Good Friday anymore here. It's uh, Easter Saturday. And so I think one of the tensions uh, that I often find is we have a great example in Jesus on Good Friday of what it means to love, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And yet we still, every year, we spend a day sitting in the tomb between the death and the resurrection. And so we have this period where it actually gives us a great resource to be able to, to process uh, those things. We have to love our enemies, but the day is still yet to come when uh, all things will be put to rights. And so, yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. One of the things I think is important for me to add now, and I got my tissue because y'all is probably going to be hard, is, uh, is talking about how as, uh, as multiracialized, as one whose father's from Bariqua, and my mom is from the U.S. South, so my mom's an Anglo. Uh, as I mentioned before, I had Mama, who was racialized white, born and raised in Jim and Jane Crow, South Carolina. And uh, the vices, the racist vices in Mamma were brutal. Few people have loved me like Mamma did. She really, really loved me. But there were always enormous gaps where there should have been intimacy because of the forms of white supremacy that she had imbibed, that people had rooted into her. And friends, I'm, I, this is not going to be the same for everybody. I understand that. Um, because I'm now talking about a family member. But sometimes it's family members who are the ones that are erasing the pains, the racist pains that you're experiencing. They're, they're, they're suggesting that the blows that you're taking on your racialized body are real blows and so forth. And I'm talking about loving, loving Mamma for over 20 years, praying and begging the Lord to uproot forms of racism in somebody that I loved more than I can. I can tell you all. And there were so many times where it just seemed nothing was happening. And there were so many times where we'd get into a point in a conversation. I know that there's no, this can go no further. And this is with somebody I love so great, so, so dearly. So when I'm talking about promoting mercy across racialized minds, I'm thinking about mammal. I'm thinking about when it was bought by the blood of the king but who was so steeped in these forms of white supremacy that she couldn't even love her grandson, who she loved so dearly as well as she should have. So this is not just abstract racism. This is the sort of stuff that divides families. This is the sort of stuff that, that again, diminishes the kinds of neighbor love and intimacy that we should have in our families. And so I remember praying for Mamma at times, frankly, giving up praying for Mamma, hoping that the Lord would be merciful. And I remember. It started in part where I was praying for her because she, she called me into her room and she asked 
she asked me why I had so many black friends and don't I know that black people shouldn't be uh, with white people and even Latino people and all this sort of stuff. And I was completely devastated. And that's when the praying started. And I remember it was about three years before she died. <laughs> we were talking on the phone and she was talking to me about my best friend. His name's Lawrence. He's African-American and Jamaican, very dark skinned, very dark. And she said, come a long ways. I want you to know that I see Lawrence as my grandson too. And I know I still have a ways to go, but I do love him. And I thank you for the ways that you've pushed me. It, it, was, it was so powerful. I knew it was work of the spirit. I can't guarantee you friends that that will always happen when you try to persevere, when you try to exercise faithfulness. I know what it is to look at racialized white family members and to see how lost they are in the white supremacist game and to really have my heart break because I love these people. It's not just that I'm, I feel smarter than them. I've got all the right answers. You don't have, no, I'm talking about really loving people who have been so warped and mangled by racism. And I want to, I want to conclude therefore with this point. We dare not be clanging gongs. We dare not be the sort of folks that know more history, know more legal insight, know how some of these systems operate. But when we're talking about really loving actual people, we don't have love. We're just clanging gongs. A clanging gong wasn't going to help Mamma. A clanging gong doesn't help any of my Anglo family members. Somebody that enters into their pains, enters into their sufferings, says, I'm going to do my best to love you as I can. I might have to get some distance because you might be abusive. And I, and I might have to be very careful with how we will relate. Yes, that, that might be. But somebody who says, I love and care for you so much, I will at least be a prayer warrior on your behalf. That's the kind of Christ-like, Trinitarian-inspired love that we're talking about today. Thanks all for this discussion. And this is our last question. It's for, uh, for all three of you. So if critical race theory is a prophetic critique, which reveals how we have failed to love our neighbor, then it uncovers injustice and it creates space to grieve it and also to repent. But it should also lead to the pursuit of newness of life in faith and hope and love to a pursuit of justice. So how is the church uniquely equipped to lead in this? What tools does it have to lead in this or what tools does it need to use to lead in this regard? I think Nathan, Brother Nathan, you know, just showed the uniqueness of the church, right? our unique role. I think that what CRT does well, not perfectly, but in a helpful way, is it deconstructs bad things and that's helpful. But as I've learned from my brother Jeff, it doesn't reconstruct. It doesn't really have many good tools to reconstruct. It doesn't have, for the most part, a vision of the beloved community of all. Right? It doesn't have the empowerment of the spirit to hang in there like, like, like brother Nathan just shared. And I'll just say this just to stop. Is that like, I, because I come from the world of secular ethnic studies. That's, that's, where I, that's where I spend most of my time, like 90% of the time. And I learn so much about it, but it's not the same as the kingdom of God. And that's my pastoral concern, because I see a lot of Christians now, they're like, I get it. You're, you're so burned by the church, 
and that's so real and so important to process that. But swinging to the ethnic studies thing and CRT, it's not the it's not the end and be all. I've I've experienced just as much persecution. I'm going to be honest, right? By the ethnic studies left as the Christian right, and so. But that's that's both different and that's both different from the church that we're talking about, and and this question that is being asked, that newness of life, that comes from Jesus. Ooh, there's so much going on this week in Holy Week. What does the church have? The church has a new command. The church has the empowerment of the Spirit. The, the church has uh, the hope of resurrection. And here's what I'll say about um, the final return of Jesus. And this goes for, you know, really any church. It doesn't matter if it's a church in a community of color or if it's just a white evangelical church. But if your eschatology tells you that you're going to be delivered from all of this chaos and suffering, then you don't have to do anything. You just wait. But if Jesus is returning to establish a reign of justice, and you long for that day, then you care for justice now, and you busy yourself about the work that the king will complete when the king returns. I think some churches, not all churches, have this resource that we hope in the return of a glorious king who brings justice. And for all who, who long for his appearing, I want to join with you as you work for, for that day as well. I think one of the most important things we have as Christians is a deep Trinitarian theology. We know that the Father willed for the Son to bring an end to all sin, whether it be individual, familial, tribal, national, ecclesiastical, etc. So the Son willingly comes and 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 speaks prophetic words as a greater prophet than Moses, prepares to bring greater liberation than a Moses could, is going to be the ultimate Davidic king, so is greater than David, but but takes on a humble form, lives the life of a refugee, lives a life as one that's constantly criticized and living in the backwaters and is frequently misunderstood and is, is he's trying to care for, for the least of these, trying to care for prostitutes and tax collectors. It's the religious people coming against him. And no, 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 what are you doing? This is all wrong. And Jesus consistently perseveres in love. And then Jesus ends up for cosmic salvation, giving up his life. He says it is finished. And then as you were saying earlier, Romano Chris, we sit in the tomb for a day. We sit in the tomb for a day. And then we see new life. We see that by the power of the Spirit, Christ is raised from the dead. And I want to stress this because, you see, when we are participating in kingdom realities, there are times where we feel like we're just stuck in the tomb. <laughs> That's the truth. And then we see the Spirit work in ways that are just staggering, stunning. And we go, oh, my goodness, the triune God's at work. And that's right, because, you see, then the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply the work of Christ to the people of God and to the cosmos. Yes, it's an already not yet. But as Brother Jeff was saying, we are called to be salt and light here and now. We are called to promote justice and mercy here and now, knowing that it's not going to be consummated until the king returns. But when the king returns, the king is putting all these evils to rest. Why? Because he purchased it. He purchased it. 
so I say this because there are going to be those that are part of the racialized minority in any country, and they're going to be those that are part of the racialized majority. And as you work to promote justice and mercy, you're going to cry out rightly as the psalmist will, how long, O oh Lord? Well, that's why I also love that the church has those laments. We've got an entire Psalter where we can say, Lord, we're not sure we're going to make it. But we also have the reminder that Christ said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. The spirit will be with you. I have given you the whole of the church to edify. I've given you teachers, preachers, and evangelists to equip you for these good deeds. You will be my witnesses. Let us bear witness well. Well, amen to that. Thank you so much, Dr. Cartagena, Dr. Leo, Dr. Romero. We just appreciate everything that you shared with us today. Really appreciate thinking about all of this on Good Friday and thinking about how racism is one of the sins that was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so just really appreciate you all drawing our attention to that in this conversation. Now, how can our listeners follow the three of you and support the work that you all are doing? I think each of us is on Twitter. <laughs> we all have social media. You know, my work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is to uh, train our staff in the kinds of foundational theology that will help us in ministries on campus. And I would just love your listeners' prayers as we try to uh, be equipped for the moments that we're in right now. If you want to get involved with immigration work and you're in, especially in the U.S., um, Matthew25socal.org, involved with that. And um, we'll be launching soon the Brown Church Institute. So um, more, uh, a lot more to come on that, but we're just launching that. So um, yeah, just all the normal places on social media too. Uh, so as, as, as Jeff and Robert mentioned, I'm on, on Twitter. Uh, I do have a, a, a blog and a website. So it's first name and then last name.com, Nathan Cartagena. Uh, where I'm trying to provide people with resources, some of the receipts, as we had talked about earlier, so that people can, can, can work through it. And I try to give it in bite-sized chunks rather than long academic papers. Uh, but I, I especially appreciate prayers because I'm writing a book on critical race theory. It's a Christian introduction to it. I'm trying to bring in, trying to bring in global, the global church. I'm trying to bring in the church across time. So going back to, you know, to Augustine Aquinas, for example. Um, and I'm trying to offer a very rich reflection or for the whole of the church, but it is a, and it's, it's immensely challenging time to do this. And so I, I ask for, for prayers for, for faithfulness and for the ability to be attentive, but honestly, the ability to trust that when I feel overwhelmed, I need to stop. That I can trust that God will give me the daily bread for the next day and say, okay, I stop. This is as much I can do this day. Go on. Because there are times when we have a sense of an important call and it is important, but we can, we can pour ourselves out acting as if God is not there, acting as if God doesn't provide daily bread. So uh, for those listening, certainly would appreciate your prayers as I try to execute a just and loving uh, book on critical race theory. Well, blessings to each of you with the work that you're doing. And thank you all once again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. <laughs>